over 3,000 cubic feet croc monitor enclosure, just this one. It's 16 feet tall, 16 feet wide, and 12 feet deep. It's actually more cubic feet than a normal New York single bedroom apartment uh, when I've bred them. Because the more unrelated your animals are, or the closer you can get to that benchmark standard of unrelatedness between species, the larger, robust, and longer living your animal's offspring are going to be. And That's they come out with deformities, fused tails. You see it all the time in nerds videos. Uh, you'll see if you look in the background in the tubs where he has the black dragons, you'll see a bunch of them that have uh, the tails are kinked or fused on the end. That's simply incubation temp. All right. Well, welcome back to the Animals at Home podcast. My name is Dylan Perrin, and this is the first official episode of 2021. If you are looking for more information on the podcast, make sure you head to animalsathomenetwork.com. There you'll find show notes for all the episodes as well as all the different shows we have on the network. If you'd like to support a t-shirt to support the brand, you can head to animalsathome.ca slash podcast and there you'll find a couple of t-shirts and sweaters. And of course, with the sale of every shirt or sweater, $5 is automatically donated to the Amazon Rainforest Conservancy. If you are enjoying the podcast, a five-star rating on the Apple Podcasting app is always greatly appreciated. That does really help our visibility in that app. And also, thank you very much to CustomReptileHabitats.com for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. You can find affiliate links in both the show notes as well as the YouTube description below. Last week, I did a guest appearance on the Herp Panel Forums, which is a great roundtable discussion put together by Stephen Lewis. And the other guests on the panel were Lori Torini, as well as Dr. Zach Lofman, who was the guest I had on the podcast on episode number 73. And we just discussed bridging the gap between academia and science and the hobby. And it was a great time. So I do recommend going to check that out. I'll put that in the description as well. So if you want to go take a listen, you can. All right, let's jump into this episode. So today I am speaking with Corey Imar of Toothless Reptiles. You've probably seen him on Instagram, or if you listened all the way back to, I think, episode number 15, he was one of the original guests of the podcast. I spoke with him then. In the original podcast, he tells us all about this very elaborate breeding project and his sort of breeding facility he was building in his front yard in order to hopefully captively breed crocodile monitors, which is one of those species of monitor that are very difficult to breed in captivity and very few have. So Corey updates us on the facility. He has had a successful pairing with croc monitors so he gets into all that and he also discussed just the importance of having high level husbandry when it comes to breeding these animals we talk about you know the definition of healthy and thriving needs to go far beyond just eating sleeping and breeding which is sometimes the only you know classification we use to figure out if an animal is healthy in the hobby so we talk about that we also talk about how his high-level husbandry has aided him in having a high yield as far as breeding goes, which is another fascinating side. So let's just jump right into this conversation, and I will see you at the end. Enjoy. Corey, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much for doing this. Yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm happy to spend uh, some time on a Sunday in between playoff games. Oh, there we go. It worked out <laughs> yeah, I think it's almost exactly, I was looking at my emails a couple of, you know, last week or whatever. It's almost exactly two years from when we had our first conversation. I think the last time we had a conversation was January 13th, 2019, and now obviously 2021. So at, in that conversation, you were telling us of a very extravagant, and I would say some people probably thought far-fetched idea of a massive monstrosity that you were going to put in your front yard. And that was kind of how we left it. And it's been two years and you've done a ridiculous amount of work. So maybe you could update us on what you've built in your front yard. Well, so first off, I told you the next time we did a podcast, we do it inside a That's large right. enclosure. So I set everything up inside this over 3,000 cubic feet 
croc monitor enclosure, just this one. It's 16 feet tall, 16 feet wide, and 12 feet deep. It's actually more cubic feet than a normal New York single bedroom apartment. So, <laughs> so I made that as one of my goals. So, um, but so, so basically, since we spoke last, and yeah, a lot of people probably did think it was far fetched, but anybody that knows me knows that if I have my mindset on something, it always gets done. And uh, that's kind of one of the, the catch 22s to being uh, me, I guess. I get really obsessed over a certain project, I'll get it finished, and then it's literally like a switch goes off, and then I'm on to the next project. But we finished up all the uh, permitting on the building, and it was. This is all literally a, a real project. I didn't just build this in my front yard with no permits. It was a whole process. I actually bought this house, which I told you about before. Mm -hmm. I bought this house just so I could build this building here. It's on two acres. Yeah, I think it's last Alpine. time we talked, you had just moved to this new house, right? Yeah, so it was really stressful last time we spoke too because you know, I had all this stuff as an idea in my head, knowing that I was in a, a crappy spot at the time that we spoke where I was having to take care of all of my croc monitors, the lace monitors, the water monitors, um, all in my little two car garage in small PVC enclosures. And uh, so it was like a rush to get everything built because I just felt so bad for the animals, um, which is kind of funny because, you know, normal people probably keep them in those enclosures for their life duration. Mm -hmm. So, um, but for me, I felt really bad for them. I kept telling the lizards like, dude, th there's something better coming. I swear, like, don't, Hang don't, in there. don't judge <laughs> me for this. You know, yeah. I swear to God. So, um, then after the uh, permitting process and everything, we were able, we had a crew build the actual physical building. They built the entire building in four days. Um, but that is just the sheeting, the insulation and the structure. So everything else uh, I had to build uh, with the help of my, my buddy Mark and my buddy Donald, um, who are not reptile people. They're just really good friends of mine. They know when I have projects, they're the first two people I call. And vice versa as well. I always help them out. So we just have a good friendship like that. But um, one of the main things that took so long was, I mean, when you pour a, a foundation like we did, um, and we also had to get the foundation permitted to have the area open for the lizard enclosure so they could dig, mm. um, it takes 30 days for that concrete to cure to full PSI before they can actually build on it. So you literally have like all this permitting and then you're just sitting waiting for a month and then all of a sudden four days and the building's there and you're like, Oh man, now I have to fill this space, you know? And yeah. it's like the, the building was like, Oh my God, it's so big. Like it's so much bigger than it looks on the blueprints. But then once you start putting enclosures in, you're like, Oh man, I wish I had more room. <laughs> like if I had just six more inches over here, <laughs> I could have done this or like if I had another one inch over here, I could have fit like a, a, the door hinges would have worked better, you know, stuff like that. So it helped a lot that I had uh, CAD designed a bunch of stuff and pre-built a lot of the walls and stuff beforehand. So I had a really good idea. I have a lot of uh, spatial awareness just from working in engineering for so long. So, um, but once we started building in here and we kind of had 
kind of the system down of how we wanted to get everything built and we had the equipment here to do it the big boom um forklift and stuff that we used to get the the walls stacked and, and sheared up and, and supported everything went along really well and then after that it was just finishing so i mean the the cages look like extravagant and complicated but to be fair they're just scaled up versions of your average enclosure it's literally mm -hmm. just a box that's screened on top with a bunch of cool stuff that you put inside of it you know <laughs> That is the definition of an enclosure almost. So yeah. It's a, and you have some great time-lapse videos on YouTube, and it, it did seem to come together like a puzzle, like as if you bought it from a kit and you just slapped it together. So clearly there was a lot of planning that went into it before. And as far as the uh, the concrete foundation, I forget. So you, you, there's a place for them to dig. Can they Do they dig down to a place where there's concrete, or is it just kind of a concrete moat around around the structure so they can still access dirt? Could they, could they theoretically dig out of it is basically the question? They can theoretically dig down to the Earth's core if they want to, but <laughs> yeah. they're uh, in the area that is the area uh, where the enclosures are. Um, there's actually still two feet of concrete shelf, I guess you could call it, in the rear of the enclosure. So the actual section uh, that's missing out of the slab is 10 feet wide and the cages go back 12. So there's also a three foot tall footer on the periphery of that entire opening all the way down the entire building. So they can't dig underneath. Um, and then there's a two foot skirt on the bottom of all of the walls made out of PVC that uh, block anybody from digging under the walls into the other enclosures. Um, the thing is with, with reptiles and people bring up this question a lot is that they don't they don't understand where they're going when they dig, right? True. So like if if I was going to dig under a wall, I have an idea that if I dig down and I find a spot where there is no barrier, I can then dig under and back up and I would get across the wall. Well, the monitor lizard, they just simply don't have that function neurologically. So um, they are very smart, but if they are digging and they run into something, they stop. They don't think, oh, I got to get around this obstacle. And they start, you know, <laughs> they, yeah, they, they just have no idea. Same yeah. thing with like, they understand that animals are next door, but they really don't have a concept of how to get there uh, without using line of sight. Right. So if there was like a hole in the wall and they had a screen or something, they would they would have some interaction there. But as far as, you know, trying to dig out, um, you know, it reminds me of Andy Dufresne on Shawshank Redemption. They're just, <laughs> they just crawled through a river of shit and came out clean <laughs> yeah. on the other side. Like exactly. they're just not, they just haven't, you know, they just don't have a concept of like the great escape, you know, they don't so, have a poster to hang up over the whole wall. Over the whole <laughs> yeah, while, they well, <laughs> yeah. They don't night. like polish rocks in their, in their <laughs> thing, but they, uh, but basically, all of the enclosures are contained to some degree um, as far as the dirt goes. But if they were to go in the center of the enclosure and dig down, there is nothing in there. Mm -hmm. But um, they're not going to dig back up anywhere that would be an issue. Um, the only issue I've ever had, actually, is when they do dig in the corners, there is a small gap where the skirt of the wall comes down along the side of the footer of the concrete because the concrete footer isn't like perfect, it was poured. So it's not like perfectly straight. So I have had 
where the animals start to dig in the corner and then they can see through. Mm. Um, uh, but they still can't get through. I mean, you're the, the thing is the, that, that skirt is really thin, but it's supported on both sides by tons of dirt. So they would have to pull it out or push it, which is impossible. You would have to have two animals like digging from each side and then tear away the PVC. But we actually added a stone in there so they can't, uh, they run into stone now. Mm. So yeah, that so was the only in. issue we had. Yeah, yeah. We haven't had any problems with animals getting from cage to cage digging. So as far as the overall plan is it is it very different from what you originally had or is is it fairly close to what you thought would it would kind of manifest in itself so most of it has worked out really well like as far as the functionality of the the reptile enclosures they've all been really good there's been definitely some additions i've had uh, based on necessity that weren't exactly i didn't think were going to be an issue but because of some of the animals that i brought in after i built the whole thing they became a problem like um the lace monitors what's really weird about the lace monitors which i hadn't worked with really before this um and since we've successfully bred since then their claws are sharper than croc monitor claws mm. so um they're like a different shape and they're super sharp they can actually climb the pvc sheet wow yeah so the pvc sheathing is soft enough to where they can get enough grip to actually climb the PVC sheet. So uh, the croc monitors can't do that, but we've had lace monitors that have actually gotten out of the enclosures because they've crawled the PVC sheet, got up to the screen up top. And because we had originally designed the mesh, uh, the original mesh, I think is one by, yeah, it's one by four um, or two by four uh, squares in the mesh. So we had to add um, a layer of chicken wire up there so the animals couldn't get out. But uh, the lace monitors, that's one of the weird things. And I have cameras in all the enclosures. There's 16 4K cameras with color night vision in here. And uh, so I had them all on video getting out of the enclosures and walking across the tops of the cages and they'd walk down and cruise around in the building. And then I'd come back in and I'd find them and put them back. <laughs> and um, we had that happen. And then one of the other huge issues we had was keeping the building warm when it got cold up here in Alpine. Mm. And um, what what happens is the, the outside temps will get down into the 30s. And now, you know, if I had uh, like a 10,000 BTU electric heater, which I used to have in here, it can only account for about a 20 degree differential in the building. So whether it's 30 degrees outside and you're trying to keep it 50 degrees in the building, you can do that. But if it's 30 degrees outside, you're trying to keep it 80 degrees in the building, you're screwed. You know, right. you've got a 50 degree differential. So just the, the BTUs of the heater just couldn't keep up. And it was drawing so much electricity that it just, it was putting way too much of a stress on the entire electrical system that I had, that I put in here. And so I ended up adding a 200,000 BTU propane heater and the building has its own dedicated 500 gallon propane tank. So what's cool. Of, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. So it's, it's a larger tank than the houses around me have. So, <laughs> so that, that the whole sole purpose of that tank is just to feed uh, the heater. So um, what's cool about that is if we have power outages, which is another huge problem we have up here in Alpine, um, 
the the generator that I have can run that heater because it's no longer powering like a coil that's having to feed a, a crap ton of amps. All it's really powering is a blower that's blowing air through the propane heater and the propane heater doesn't draw any power because it's just igniting the propane. Once the propane's ignited, that's it. Um, and then, uh, so there was a couple things like that where we had to kind of rethink our energy usage to make it um, a lot more economical and easier to kind of battle those, to kind of mitigate those issues as they come up. Because uh, I mean, if the power goes out in this building and it's cold at night, even if I don't catch the power outage for a couple hours, if it dies in the middle of the night, which has happened a lot of times and we've had issues with that, which I'll be happy to go into. But um, this, this, in, this building will get down into the 50s and 40s literally in four hours. Right. So, and the animals are not happy. So you'll find as soon as you come in, you'll find the animals have already moved under like heat light areas because they realize the heat's dropped. Or in the case of the water monitors, they go straight into the water because the water's still 70 some degrees because the water holds temperature a lot longer. Um, but yeah, little things like that were like, it's really stressful, especially uh, like I do all this stuff by myself. So like if an issue happens, I have to take care of it. So, yeah. And it's always in the back of your mind, especially when you're first starting you're you set this building up, you don't know what your problems are going to be until you get things rolling. And then it's like, oh, wow, we can't hold heat. So as far as the propane goes, is that a massive expense or is that, is it not too bad if you have such a large amount of propane or is it just coming um, on kind of infrequently enough where it's not bad? It's pretty bad. So I spend about $2,000 a month just on propane in the cold months. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So the only, but the, but the positive is that when it's warmer, like the propane literally costs me like, you know, a couple hundred dollars a month. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it averages out to a lot less than electricity. Um, but what's cool about the propane too, is it's kind of like I pay for it and then that's it. Like it's there. And I know it's there. Plus, I have a big backup generator that I just got that also runs on propane as well as gas, um, as well as, you know, fuel. So um, so I can connect that to there. So it, I can run it and it won't ever run out of gas. Um, so it was, yeah, I mean, it's still a, a big expense, especially in the cold months like we are now. So uh yeah, I mean it. It is what it is. I I get a six hundred plus dollar bill every week from the propane company that comes out here every Thursday to fill the tank and to top it off. Do they know so, what's in the building? Yeah, you oh, know what's do? hilarious okay. is most of my neighbors think I grow weed in here. I, I was going to say, I bet they think you have a massive grow up in the front yard. <laughs> yeah, but what's weird is they don't like not like I get uh, people that jog by and stuff, and they'll like. I can tell they're trying to like seed their way in to find out what's in the building. And I'm like, you can just like ask me, you can come look in there. Like you can come, like, come on, like come check out the building, you know, like, I don't care. And yeah. they're like, Oh no, it's all right. And I'm like, Oh yeah. Well, I have a, a bunch of reptiles in there. That's why we have a, cause there's a, a huge, you know, evaporative cooler on the outside. That's a 2,800 square foot cooler that cools the whole building, the whole heater, the propane tanks, you know, and then the, the water pump system and chiller on the back of the building. So people just naturally think like, oh yeah, I'm growing weed. Like, yeah, I mean, theoretically I could put pot plants in these, in these cages and they would grow, <laughs> That's um, true. You, you know, but I don't want I don't want any of the lizards getting addicted to marijuana. Yeah, and, we can't have that. And I don't I only have so much food, so I don't want them to get the munchies <laughs> and just start <laughs> exactly. eating everything. Yeah. 
<laughs> and I know one other thing you said you had an issue with, I heard you say, I think on one of your, your videos a few months ago was humidity as well. And was that, I, maybe that was associated with the heat. Yeah. So, uh, I go through this with people asking me, uh, with, uh, like when I had the sunroom, um, that I used to breed the croc monitors in a few years back. And what happens is, so if, if I don't have any cooling in this room on like a normal day, even today, it's only like 65 outside, but the sun is out. Well, this building will get into the 120s on a hot day. It'll get in the 140s. Whoa. So you have to cool that building because we have 10 skylights in here. So the problem is that when you cool a building, if you're not using an evaporative cooler like I am, you're constantly introducing dry air. Mm -hmm into the building. So you're effectively pushing out all the humidity constantly throughout the day. So even though you're maintaining the temperature, which in your mind, you're creating like a better environment because it's not as hot, you're literally drying it out like a cool desert, you mm -hmm. know? So it's almost better in a sense to keep the humidity higher while maintaining a warmer temp than it is to like push a bunch of AC into the building to drop the temps down, which is effectively dropping your, your humidity down to like below 30%. So the way I combated that in the building is we're cooling the building and not the enclosures. Mm. So your enclosures with the exception of the, the grating on the top, which isn't really affecting humidity much because the humidity tends to settle down low. Um, your enclosures are effectively their own little miniature environments inside the building. So it's the literally you I've made a gigantic incubator in here. So where you have a normal incubator, you're maintaining temperature in the incubator, but the egg tubs are being really not affected by the air blowing around. So they're staying at a much more constant temperature, much more constant humidity. They have a couple of tiny air holes in them. So they're getting an exchange, but not a lot. Um, and that way you can, you could open the door to a, a, you know, an incubator and shut it. And you may have a five or six degree change in the incubator right then. And the heaters are going to kick on and all that stuff. But your egg boxes will really only fluctuate maybe a degree, degree and a half. Right. Because the, by the time that incubator becomes back to, you know, your, your homeostasis or whatever you want to call it your standard that you have, the, the egg boxes haven't really adjusted that much because they're kind of their own entity inside the incubator. So it's the same thing in here. So I'm using an evaporative cooler, which is uh, in effect adding humidity to the building. Not a lot, but it is um, at least enough to where it's maintaining the same humidity uh, without like just shitting dry air into the, into the building. Yeah. Um, and then on top of that, we have uh, all the enclosures are staying really nice and humid because there's a misting system inside all of them. So mm. all of that can be controlled by my phone as well. And that misting system, which was another issue we had, that misting system has its own electric hot water heater. So the hot water coming out of the misting system is about 120 degrees. So by the time it atomizes out of the misters, it is basically room temperature, right? So there is an exchange of temperature between the water in the misting system and the ambient in the enclosure. So if it's 120 and my ambient is 80, obviously I have a 40 degree temperature change, but it's going in the right direction. So right. 
the issue that I'm having, when, what I was having is, and a lot of people are having, and I've spoken to them about this before, is if you're having to mist your enclosure often to keep humidity high and you're using water that is, say, room temperature or water that's straight out of the tap, you're effectively dumping the temps in the enclosure every couple hours. Right. So if you have, you know, normally I had tap water running through that. So it was water that could be fluctuating by 30 degrees, depending on the months. So I might have water coming out of there that's 40 degrees. Now I have a 40 degree differential in the opposite way. So I'm basically sucking 40 degrees out of the ambient in the enclosure every time I missed, which I missed for almost an hour duration every six hours in these enclosures to keep humidity up. Yeah, and that's all on a timer. And um, we use lacrosse uh, temperature and hygrometer probes in here. So I can literally go on my phone, open up the app, look at a graph of all of the humidity ranges within that entire 24 hour period for any day I want. And then what I do is I take that, you know, just the optics of the graph, you can see where your spaces are, where the humidity is dropping and then coming back up because the misting system's on dropping, coming back up. And you can go fill in those gaps with your Bluetooth controlled from your phone beehive water system that I have hooked up to my misting system that I built. So I can literally just add in a couple if I want to add 10 minutes in there just to break the peak out of it. Right. I can do that. So, um, yeah, it's like all that stuff matters. I mean, if it didn't matter, I wouldn't have been so successful with all three species in the last year of having this building up. Yeah. So let's talk about what's in the building. Cause if some people may be listening, they're not sure what you have. You actually have not, you don't have a huge amount of animals. You have very large enclosures. And so maybe you could talk what, what animals you're keeping and kind of what breeding pairs you're working with. Yeah. So, um, so right now I actually just have basically a single pair of each species. Um, and I just, If you know what you're doing with breeding monitor lizards, and a lot of these people pretend like they do, you know whether those animals are going to breed or not. You may not be confident enough to be able to separate them and weed out the animals you don't think are going to breed enough because you don't want to risk them not breeding and me not getting my money. But you can tell which animals are more healthy for the animals to be breeding like if i put two animals together and they're fighting and they constantly have issues i'll just get rid of that effective counterpart and try a different pair um so right now i've whittled everything down to a single pair of each species so i have a single pair of lace a single pair of croc monitors and a single pair of water monitors that i breed um and that's all i have in here with the exception of yoshi who i don't really breed to to anyone Um, And then I have the babies that we hatch out. I have them in the vision cages, Mm -hmm. but I don't, uh, I don't, I don't subscribe to the idea that more is more, you know, Uh, there there's, if, if you, if you, if you're good at reptile breeding, you don't need a, you don't need quantity over quality. You're not helping yourself in any way. I mean, it, with my single player of black dragons, I can effectively breed 80 black dragons a year if I want to push that female. So that is more than anyone is getting with however, regardless of however many black dragons they have. Right. And there's a reason why these other people that breed black dragons are only getting eight eggs, 
10 eggs. They're coming out with tail fusions and deformities. It has everything to do with husbandry and nothing to do with the animals being so many of them there. Um, you're kind of just shooting yourself in the foot based on a myth that somebody put together forever ago. Um, but yeah, I don't have a lot of animals in here. And every single pair I have in here has successfully bred. And I think that's a testament to just the fact that you're giving the animal, you're observing the animals and you're seeing what the animals like and what's safest for the animal and most comfortable for the animal. And that's all paying off. Well, and that, that's a really good point is having a smaller number allows you to know the animal really well. Like I guarantee you, you know it all six of those animals extremely well their body language what they like what they don't like and if you have way too many you can never cater to what they like and that's probably where your, your success will start to slip if you can't dial in the husbandry that's specific to that individual yeah it's individualized husbandry rather than species individual husbandry i don't treat my female croc as if she's just a single croc monitor entity and that's how i take care of her I take care of my single croc as if she's cricket, my pet croc monitor, and I know exactly what she likes, what she doesn't like, the things that she likes me to do in the cage. I know what stresses her out. I know that she likes to drink from the hose every couple of weeks instead of drinking from the river. So I feed her, I'll drink, let her drink from the hose and the next day I'll feed her because I know she doesn't like to drink water and eat on the same day. <laughs> like, you know, stupid stuff, little idiosyncrasies that all of this stuff with the high-end monitors has to do with the animals being comfortable in captivity. It is not possible for you to not have an individualized approach to husbandry of those species and those particular animals and be successful. It is seen all across the things that all these other guys are doing with the lace monitors and the croc monitors who have not been able to breed them. There is a reason why I have been able to successfully breed croc monitors and lace monitors and get fertile eggs of both species in a year of having this facility up. And it has nothing to do with the care sheets that people print out on the internet. A lot of that stuff is basic stuff and you're it's all the extra stuff you do on top of the basic care needs that make you successful at least have made me successful in keeping the animals. Yeah, there's, there's a point that I've heard you make before, and I think we see this in the reptile world all the time. It's like this mentality of if they don't get this form of enrichment or this piece of husbandry, they won't die. So that means they probably don't really need it. And, yeah. and you know, UV is a good example, or, or just even you know, opportunities to climb and dig and things like that. It's like, Yes, technically that is true. The animal won't die, but you have no idea what damage you're doing for one. And two, you don't know what, how much more welfare the animal can exist in if you did provide those things. Yeah, it's this idea of what's a requirement right. for yeah. keeping an animal. And nobody has defined that word. Uh, in basic sense, it is just what things an animal needs to live right? Yeah. I mean, biologically, that is what you're talking about. What exactly. basic needs does an animal need to live? If I was running a lab and I had mice in a lab that I was just using for experiments, those mice are just in little boxes 
and they get a certain amount of food and a certain amount of water on a daily basis. That's it. That's all yeah. you need. That is the requirements for keeping a mouse in a lab. And those are my controls as yeah, somebody who's beating. running a lab. Yeah. yeah. So I'm just keeping the animal healthy via the specific requirements to keep it alive and healthy, which in reality, healthy just means they're going to live long enough for me to perform my experiments and have some type of conclusive result at the end, whether it's negative, positive, what have you. So if anybody is trying to keep an animal based on just meeting the requirements, go away. You're <laughs> never going to be successful. Uh, it, it's just ridiculous. I, and honestly, you're putting your animals at risk. I mean, these are high-end animals. Um, you know, like who who buys a dog and they're like looking up the requirements for their dog, <laughs> yeah. you know? And then they're What's keeping the least it like- I can do? <laughs> yeah. And then they're like keeping it in a box yeah. and they're like, walking by it on a daily basis its level of interaction is just when you throw the bowl in to feed it yeah. you know like these animals are intelligent you know they are um uh they are they're sentient beings if you would say so they have like a level of cognition in them i mean there, there was an experiment done a long time ago where they took a chimpanzee and they had it isolated and they were feeding it without any interaction with anything whatsoever. So they fed this animal. I don't know if you've heard of this, you probably have. I don't know if I have. Well, they Okay, well, they took a chimpanzee and they were trying to uh, basically study uh, socialization and, and social needs of animals uh, as, as, you know, as it reflects to requirements, like what we're talking about. Um, so they just basically nourished this animal with food and water and zero interaction since it was born. They grew it up. And then they put it in a room with other chimpanzees. And it literally sat in a corner, went into shock and died. Hmm. So you, there is a threshold and a need for any animal sentinel that is going to outweigh any type of biological requirement. So, you know, like it, it, you can feed that animal. The animal was fed and watered. And it was technically healthy, but when it was put in a situation where it had to be social, it didn't know what to do. It hadn't been exposed to it before. So you could say that socialization is absolutely a requirement for health and longevity based on just that experiment. Obviously, that's a chimpanzee. We're talking about something that is extremely genetically close to us as humans. But still, I mean, all that stuff applies to, to anything. I mean, it's... I just, I just don't understand why somebody would want to go into keeping an animal just based on requirements. I mean, you mm -hmm. can, uh, and the people who are arguing for requirements are exactly the people who are not doing everything they can for their animals. Yes, and they're seeing so that they're seeing that out, out in the, out in the production of their breeding projects. I mean, you, you see it all the time where everybody's like, Oh, well, the, your, your animals are, well, well, that's not a requirement. You know, it's not, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter if your lizard has UV. Well, of course you're going to say that. You don't give your lizards UV. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You have a you, position. You go to down hold. to home. Yeah. You, you have a biased opinion. You go down to Home Depot and you pick up a floodlight because you can get a pack of four of them for $3. 
yeah. you put them in there and then your control is that, well, my lizard didn't die and it still produces a couple eggs every once in a while and it feeds and whatever, and I can keep it in this closet and we talk to it every once in a while. I mean, in those cases, you, you could honestly argue that if you were interacting with an animal more often personally and you were taking away its UV input using just floodlights, you could say that you were in a sense mitigating the negative effects of not using UV because there has to be a give and take in all of this stuff in the reptile husbandry. There just has to be. Yeah. So if you have an animal that's getting UV, it may be less inclined to need something like psychological nourishment or physical nourishment or interactions with me, you know? Um, so, I mean, there, there's always a give and take and there's always ways to kind of work around things. If you can't get a hold of certain resources, obviously there's nobody else who has 16 foot tall monitor enclosures. So <laughs> yeah. I cornered that market. I mean, yeah. even zoos don't have them outside of reserves, which are literally just a fenced off area of their natural habitat. So yeah, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, it's a, it's a zero sum earned argument. Like there is no, there's no positive to you winning that argument and the animal is always losing. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like somehow we've redefined health as just not dead. <laughs> like that's yeah, a pretty, that's a very horrible. weak way to define it. So as yeah. far as monitor breeding goes, like I'm not super familiar with it. I know obviously the water monitors, people have been breeding for a while in captivity. People have sort of varied success there. But as far as the lace and the croc monitors go, how much success has there been just in general for captive breeding? I know maybe more on the lace side and I feel like on the croc side, there hasn't been much at all, but maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, the lace monitors, there's been some good successes. And what's cool about the lace monitors is there's been some repetition. So, I mean, anytime you're doing anything scientific, you need to be able to recreate your results, right? So if I breed lace monitors once and I don't breed them for two years, I'm not going to be the guy that comes out with the lace monitor breeding care sheet because I haven't been able to reproduce the results. Exactly. So I have no idea why those animals bred and produced. You know, <laughs> I can't speak. I can't testify to the things that got them to breed and produce. I have no idea. So there have been some per people like Don Church. I think he owns a Surian Farms. Um, and he's been producing uh, lace monitors for quite a while. So, um, but the, uh, I haven't, so I've seen a lot of people not be successful with the lace, but it's like, uh, I don't understand why. Like, uh, I, I don't know if that sounds like cocky or maybe ignorant, but like when I brought in the animals um, and the animals hadn't been successful uh, in captivity for a couple of years before I got them, um, I literally had a, a clutch of five fertile lace eggs in, in a few months. And then she laid another fertile clutch of lace eggs two months after that. And I hadn't done any brumation. Um, I hadn't done anything. The only thing I did was I recreated the same environment that I have the croc monitors in because the lace are extremely close cousins to the croc monitors. Um, and I have two of their uh, skulls actually that uh, Ricky Wheeler was nice enough to preserve for me, um, which I'll be happy to bring on the, on the video. And, yeah, um, awesome. and it's like, uh, I didn't do anything special to get those animals to breed, you know, with the water monitors, it was actually a lot more work with the waters just to kind of figure out what they needed. Um, but as far as the lace, 
I just recreated the stuff that I knew the, the Crocs needed and then it just worked and it worked multiple times over. So um, it kind of just fell into that. And the things that I did with the lace aren't anything that anybody can't do um, on their own or find out on their own. I mean, when it comes to the Crocs and the lace breeding successfully, I, I don't have like really a mentor that I'm going to and he's telling me how to do this stuff. Like I'm using the exact same resources that are available to anybody who wants to do these things. I do the research. Research. I know that in Australia, these lace monitors are probably laying eggs in termite mounds and not necessarily digging burrows in the ground. Um, so I made like termite mounds in the enclosures, you know, and then I heated them from underneath with heat pads. It's like, and did she that, use them? Nothing special. Yeah. Yeah. She's That's had uh, three or four clutches now. The first clutch she laid was in, uh, I called them lace boxes as opposed to lay boxes, but they were basically just smaller, taller versions with a hole in the top so they could kind of burrow into them, um, which the mon water monitors don't like. They don't like anything with a lid on it. Um, but the, uh, so I had those. So our first clutch was in there and then her second and third uh, and the other ones were all in the, in the uh, the termite mounds, which is just dirt that I kind of built up into the walls, um, so they had kind of a hill to go into. But they'll find like the high spot or find like a corner, and they start digging, and then they pick up the temperature change because it's heated, and they'll find that hot spot and they'll mm. dump their eggs there. Um, as far as the croc monitors, with the exception of a couple zoos, the Hawaiian Zoo and the Madrid Zoo in Spain. Um, there hasn't really been a, a lot of successes with the Crocs, and there definitely hasn't been any repeat successes with the Crocs. There's been some people who brought in some animals, and maybe under the stress of transport, they decided to lay a clutch of eggs. Um, but it's it hasn't really been repeated, and I haven't repeated it yet either, so I can't talk shit, I guess. <laughs> so... Um, it's one of those things where they, they're just they're just a whole different ballgame. I mean, people don't understand until they start working with them how different they are. They're just on a whole different intelligence level, and they don't give you a lot to translate, you know. So if you don't go into it knowing your baselines and having a ton of information, which Madrid Zoo in Spain was really cool about posting a lot of stuff they did on the study that they have. And even their croc monitor didn't even burrow. It literally just laid eggs on top of the substrate. Oh, weird. So, yeah. So it's like on one end, you have croc monitors being so difficult to breed in captivity. Then on the other end, you have people like the Madrid Zoo breeding them and getting eggs on accident. <laughs> in in subpar conditions where they can't even burrow to lay the eggs. So it's like there's such a large spectrum that you can't really pick out what things could have possibly triggered the animal to do that. Um, one of the issues I think people run into is altitude. That was another reason why I wanted this place up in Alpine. It's at about 2,500 feet elevation. Um, and that's another reason why I think people have successes after they fly their animals to a new location, because the animals are at a high altitude in a cargo area of an aircraft, which isn't necessarily pressurized to the same as they do the, the, uh, the, the passenger areas. 
So they are getting an altitude change. Um, so they are getting that experience of altitude. And there are biologists who theorize that the croc monitors go up large mountains to breed in Papua New Guinea. Um, and some of the mountains in Papua New Guinea go well past 7,000 wow. feet in elevation. So, um, so they're, you know, they're up there. So they have to, there's just got to be some other cues. I, I think it's uh, kind of ignorant and naive to think that we can figure this stuff out without diving into things like that. Mm -hmm. um, like whether altitude is, is something that, that matters. I mean, the animals have to have altitude cues. I mean, it's, it's just crazy. So, um, I mean, 40 million years of evolution and we're coming into this at what, 30 years of BS anecdotal, you know, husbandry of people keeping lizards in their garage and in their house and in closets in their buildings and like, oh yeah, I figured it out. Like, yeah. <laughs> no, you didn't. No, you didn't. No, yeah. you didn't. I haven't even figured this stuff out. I would never consider myself an expert on monitor lizards. I would never say I haven't figured out. I can tell you that I have had successful results and my results are successful breedings, but ha ha that doesn't equate to having successes in keeping the animals. I don't know what the actual definition of success in reptile keeping is just as the same. We don't really know what the definition of requirement is. Exactly. I don't know. I've never spoken to a croc monitor. I don't know what he's looking for. <laughs> yeah. What do you miss? You know, like, yeah. Like, Hey, what, what is your ideal, like positive? Like, where do you want to be in five years? You know, <laughs> like, I, have, I have yeah. no idea. Like I'm guessing like everyone else, the only difference is like, I'm not, picking up a cue randomly and then throwing resources at it. Like I do the research, I get to know the animals. I take the data that I personally observe and I couple that with data that is written on the internet, which most of it is BS. And I go from there. Like that's all I do. It's just a system of deductive reasoning that anybody goes through in science. Like exactly. every scientist goes through the same thing. It's crazy that these same like stupid techniques aren't being applied to everyone. I think people are trying to apply them. They just don't really know what they're doing and they're not willing to do the research. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. And, you know, have you gone through two breeding seasons or just one with the crocs? And if you if you have gone through two, did you make adjustments on this? Because I know you'll, I think you've just produced the first clutch of, you know, you have those two fertile eggs, which I'll get you to talk about in a second. But did you have a whole season where you tried and didn't get fertile eggs and then had to, you know, adjust some things? So the crocs have been uh, cycling constantly since mm. we've had the building up. Okay. So we've had clutches verified via x-ray, um, but the animals kept reabsorbing their yolk um, or reabsorbing their eggs. So um, and they would cycle about every four months. And that's uh, after that's with reabsorption in there. So so generally, if you're if you're getting like a, a, a cycle and then you're breeding and then the animals laying the eggs, it's a lot shorter cycle. So like if we were able to actually produce crocs on a regular basis, they should produce eggs about every three months or so, mm. um, because there is a lot of time wasted in there between a croc cycling, they have the follicles, and then they're kind of waiting for those perfect conditions and a male to fertilize. And that time could take a few weeks to a month where they're kind of stuck in this in-between space. 
And then once their biologics decide, hey, I'm going to get rid of this whole thing. I'm starting over. Yeah. Then you have like a time period of reabsorption and then kind of a settling back into where they can start another cycle. So it takes a lot longer. The same thing with the water monitors. If I, if I cycle Onyx and I don't breed her, she doesn't lay her eggs every two and a half to three months like she does now. It'll take another extra month because she's waiting in between there gotcha. for me to breed her. She thinks she's going to get bred, but it just never happens. Right. So she doesn't know. Like I tell her, but I don't speak water monitor. <laughs> yeah. Not very well. Like I'm yeah. waiting for that Google Translate. Exactly. You're yeah. out the whole water monitor dial. <laughs> but yeah, so there's uh so we had an entire year where we had, I think, four or five um verified via X-ray follicle growth cycles. Um, and I used all that data to now I don't have to x-ray. So I don't have to stress the animal out by putting it in a burlap sack in a tub and taking it to the vet um, and getting it x-rayed so we can see that it's cycling because now I have that data. I know that if I maintain my conditions that I have now, the animals will at least cycle regardless of them laying eggs. So I basically invested that whole first year into just developing a schedule of croc monitor cycles. Mm. Um, and that's an investment that you have to make as a breeder, which these other people are not doing because they're like, oh, I don't want to fuck up this cycle. I could get $70 million out of this croc monitor <laughs> if it lays eggs. I don't yeah. want to worry about stressing her out, taking her to the vet, and then ruin this whole, I could get money. And it's like, no, you have to realize yeah, you might be stressing her out, taking her to the vet. You are going to stress her out. That's another stupid definition is the word stress. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There is a stressor involved. There's a stressor involved when I tong feed my lizard. Like there's a stressor involved no matter what in anything yeah. you do with monitors. Keeping them in captivity is the ultimate stressor for any animal. <laughs> yes. So, so it's like uh, – I had to make that decision. Okay, I'm going to worry. I'm not going to worry about stressing the animal out because I already know if that does have an effect, that's not what I'm going for here. That's not my that's not my outcome I'm trying to achieve. I'm just trying to collect data on their cycles. So, I would wait for a certain number of months. Um so I would usually get the animals x-rayed between 30 days and 45 days, so about a month or a month and a half. Um every month to a month and a half, all of them. And then what's really cool is we started noticing that all of the crocs and all of the enclosures, because at this time I had, I think, four females, they were all starting to sync up. So as the year went on, they were all at very similar stages in their follicle growth. And then they would all stop eating at on the same week. Wow. So they were uh, syncing up just like, you know, the ladies do. I don't know. That's right. <laughs> um, but I've heard myths of ladies yeah. syncing up. Yeah. So, um, uh, so it was one of those things where we kind of threw the first year out. I mean, it would have been cool to have eggs, but without the data, you're not going to be able to reproduce the results, you know? So on the second year, uh, I did make some changes. So I don't know if I really want to get into the specifics of those changes. Um, because to be honest, a hundred percent of the people that are breeding crocs aren't going to do it correctly. Um, so it's probably just going to end up with issues, but there were some temperature cues that I had to get into and anybody can go on the internet and look up Papua New Guinea geographic temperature changes and look up 
the temperature changes that are at altitude, say 7,000 feet in altitude, <laughs> see kind of what your temperature changes and your humidity levels are when you're out of the canopy, you know, maybe a little hint, a hint there. there. <laughs> yeah. And you can do that research. I did that research. I don't know a guy that has boots on the ground in Papua New Guinea who's like, you know, catching crocs and shit and probing them and like, oh yeah, I know this one. Yeah. If you yeah. do this, like we're going to get it. You know, there's, I don't have any of that. All these resources are on the internet. You can find all this stuff. I didn't do anything special. You yeah. know, I just build all this stuff. I do the research. I keep an eye on the animals and I've been really, really successful with it. That's it. So obviously those changes ha had an effect and you did end up getting a, a clutch of eggs um, and I think two fertile. And then how many, was there a few slugs in there as well? Yeah. So we had six eggs, three of them were fertile. So half the clutch was junk. Um, and then the other half was fine. And we actually got some good data on that clutch too, because we ended up giving um, cricket, um, what's it, oxytocin. So uh, after she had laid her eggs, I was, I noticed that the contractions had stopped, but she had only laid four eggs at that point. So she had pushed out three fertiles and a slug. And uh, I was concerned because with her first clutch, that's her first ever clutch, uh, definitely her first fertile clutch. A lot of times the animals take so long to lay the eggs, which she had taken a long time to lay those eggs. Um, their uh, contractions will time out. So they only have so much time they can really push those eggs out. And you see that in, in monitors anywhere where you have like a smaller monitor and they end up laying a couple eggs in the water dish or on the ground, uh, you know, within like a week or so of laying a clutch. Generally, right. that's because they're pushing out as many eggs as they can. And then once their body kind of deflates and and all that stuff starts to retract, they kind of lose all those pulses and that oxytocin that fires those contractions. And then they just kind of can't get anything out anymore. Um, so I had actually, uh, we, I took her for x-rays that day after she had kind of stopped for a few hours and I knew she was done. Took her in for an x-ray with Dr. Jeff Jenkins here in San Diego and Dr. Gillette. Um, they're both really good vets here in San Diego, the avian and exotics animal hospital. And uh, they x-rayed and there were two more eggs in one of her tubes. So um, I started giving her oxytocin injections. I had to give her an injection every hour, which wow. sucked. So um, for how many hours? We, um, for about eight hours. Oh, okay. So uh, we were able to come up with a dosage strategy off of that data as well, because I was keeping an eye on, on her the whole time via the cameras. I had her isolated in the lay box area. And then um, my uh, trying to get some light on the camera. But, uh, <laughs> and then, uh, so we had, uh, so we started out at like a half CC and we ended up at one CC. And then once I started giving her one and a half CCs, um, cause you generally build up to a high dose and then you maintain the high dose. Um, we were able to figure out that one and a half CCs was kind of like the sweet spot. So I started giving her one and a half CC injections and sure enough, she pushed out, I gave it to her for a few hours and she was, she would get really strong contractions for about 20 minutes. And then she would taper back off and I'd give her another dose. She'd get really strong contractions for a couple minutes and then she'd taper back off. So um, in the last hour or so, she pushed out 
one of the eggs and I'm like, oh, okay, well, that's nice. This is actually working. We're not torturing the animal. Um, cause a lot of this stuff is new. Nobody's done this stuff before. Yeah. Um, giving a lizard oxytocin injections every hour on the hour to stimulate, <laughs> you know, uh, an egg to pass to make sure it doesn't, you know, calcify in our ducks and have issues with egg binding later on. And nobody else is doing this crap. People don't even take their lizards to the vet. Even all these people that are like, oh, I breed lizards. I'm like the best breeder in the world. Like they, you don't do anything for your lizards. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we finally got uh, the two eggs out and then, yeah, she was fine. So it was, it was really cool to kind of get that data for Dr. Jenkins. Um, so we know what the sweet spot is and we can uh, kind of better back figure that weight for the animal and the species. So you can figure that out for now, all the other monitor species. Hmm. So yeah, it was really cool. Is there data on potential clutch size? Like, do you think there's more potential in terms of getting more than six eggs or out of her? Or is that kind of like an average croc clutch size, which we probably don't really know what the average would be? I would say that's probably around average as far as total eggs. Um, at least with the data that we have, it's definitely a, a long average. But I don't see a reason why you couldn't get 10 or more eggs, but you would need a larger female. I think one of the things people overlook is, and I did, um, I don't know if you saw, but I did an Instagram post with a seven-day-old fertile croc monitor egg next yes, to a seven-month-old Salvatore egg and a seven-month-old lace monitor egg. And the croc monitor eggs are huge. Yeah. They're like twice the size and that's at, at laying. So they continue to grow as you incubate the animals or incubate the eggs. So the animals generally grow like 30%. Um, the eggs will grow about 30% in size um, as they, as they incubate because the eggs grow with the animals inside. So uh, it's, yeah, that the, the eggs are friggin' huge. So I, I wouldn't, if you had a giant female, like, yeah, I'm sure you could do better, but six eggs of that size being in an animal that size, I think is probably pretty maxed out. I mean, I, I would think the most you could probably get in there is probably eight. Yeah. Um, Cause you have to figure too. I mean, the croc monitors don't have huge torsos. They're long tailed lizards. So, you know, I mean that, that female's seven feet, but her body is about the size is is smaller than my six foot black dragon. So yeah, they're sleek. Yeah, yeah. So they don't have a whole lot of space in there. Um, cricket is uh, crickets in this enclosure. She's staring at me through the lay oh, box hole. <laughs> she's doing the velociraptor thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she is literally. So as far as the eggs, they're in an incubator right now. And uh, do you have any idea incubation length? Um, so I would imagine with the temperatures that we have them at, they should be around the same length um, as a water monitor at the same temperature. So probably around 220 days. Um, so yeah, I, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, there's not a whole lot of data on uh, incubation on the species. I mean, you're kind of just incubating them at the same temperature you incubate all the other brands at. Um, but, but I know you, our, you tend to in incubate at a cooler temperature than I think many, right? Yeah. So on the black dragons, you have issues with development if you if you incubate them at too high of a temp. 
So I incubate the black dragons at 80 degrees, um, which is generally around like 79-ish when I use my actual certified scientific calibrated temperature probes. They're liquid-filled probes. Um, so uh, a lot of other people are incubating at a higher temp. And to be honest, it's not doing anything but making the lizards less. They, they grow slower. They thrive slower. They don't get as big. They don't live as long. Um, and they come out with deformities, fused tails. You see it all the time in nerds videos. Uh, you'll see if you look in the background in the tubs where he has the black dragons, you'll see a bunch of them that have uh, the tails are kinked or fused on the end. That's simply incubation temps. Um, but they're trying to get the animals out as quickly as possible. What's really crazy <clears throat> is, so if you incubate at 85 or 86 degrees, which is what most of these people are incubating at, if you take three degrees out of that, it doesn't even add anything to the incubation period. So that wow. three degrees is literally just really bad for the animal and not helping you out at all. So but when you drop from 83 to 80, which is more like 79, the animals lay their eggs at 78 degrees. If you probe the areas where the animals dig down to and lay their eggs, or if you let them cover up their eggs for 24 hours and you pull an egg out and temper probe it, it's around 78 degrees. So, um, and that's without a nighttime cool down because we're keeping them in incubators that are perfect all year round. So if you drop down to 79, 78, 80 degrees, you're increasing that by about 60 days now. So you go from about 180 or so days to about 250 or so days. Um, so, and in that time, the animals get a lot more melanin production because they're in the egg for longer, even without the UV input, they're still getting a bunch of melanin production. They don't come out with deformities. You get a hundred percent hatch rate. The animals come out way bigger than they do if you incubate them and rush them through development. Um, there is maybe some argument for putting the animals at a lower temp of say 78 degrees for the first month or two and then slowly bringing it up to 83 degrees. Um, I haven't wanted to try that just because I'm not gonna put the animals at risk. Mm -hmm. um, but like tail fusions and stuff happen in the first month and a half or two months of development. So, you know, like that stuff's happening really early on. So if you're rushing development in the initial stages, you're gonna have problems. It's the same things with human beings. I mean, what we have most of our body is literally there and the heart is there in the first, what, four weeks. Yeah, exactly. You know, so it's like you, you see the same thing in development of these animals that, you know, generally their, their ability to thrive and survive is kind of set in stone within the first couple of weeks. So this is kind of a touchy subject because I know that there are people that their business and their income comes from breeding reptiles. And be with that, you know, you're feeding your family and whatnot, but you have to look at your bottom line and that's where, you know, expenses begin to get cut. And so I know you clearly, the bottom line wasn't the focus initially. Do you think that your style of breeding and care right now can, could eventually turn a profit? Because, you know, we get stuck with, with that, that, you know, we were talking about big time breeders who are breeding, but they have to cut corners in order to make a profit, which is, if you just look at the ethics of it is unfair to the animal. Is there wiggle room there? Do you think? Yeah, I think there absolutely is. I mean, the, 
you look at these other breeders and I'm, I always use nerd as an example because they're like the golden standard of just keeping animals in the most basic enclosures. Like there are so many things they could be doing that don't cost a nickel mm -hmm. that would increase their output and increase their throughput and ultimately make them way more money on the back end with a zero investment aside from the time that they would have to put in. Right. You know, like the stuff that I have in my enclosure does not cost crazy amounts of money. The two by fours I used are $2 and 96 cents a piece. The PVC sheets I use are $30 a piece. You can use something else. You don't have to use PVC sheets. None of this stuff is crazy expensive. I'm not using any foreign materials or space age products. The only difference between what I'm doing is the amount of time that I was willing to put in mm. in the beginning to get everything built. I think that people, uh, especially people in the reptile trade, are just happy with getting what they're getting as long as they can just keep doing what they're doing. You know, so they're not going to be making changes to make any of their stuff better because they just don't have the motivation to do it. So right. there is uh, like it, it also has to do with where your standards are. Right. So it's easy for these other guys to say that the standard that I'm keeping and you kind of alluded to it, too, is like above and beyond without regard for outcome on the end financially. Right. But I don't necessarily think that's true. I think that, and I've proven over and over that I can financially produce more money out of these animals than these other guys are with much more animals. They have more animals. So right. technically, if I have 10 black dragons that I've purchased, Let's say they're two grand a piece. I have a $20,000 investment, right? Just in animals. Now I take that $20,000 investment and I whittle it down to two animals like I have. That is now a $4,000 investment. So yeah. what do I do with that $16,000 that I didn't spend? I put it into the enclosures. You know how nice of an enclosure you could build for $16,000? <laughs> Exactly. If you do the math that what they're doing is the same as what I'm doing, except they're wasting way more money, way right. more money. And the animals aren't getting the excess. The animals aren't benefiting from the money that they're wasting. In my position, I have that $4,000 investment of the animals. They're producing 80 black dragons, that's $160,000 of animals a year for what? A $4,000 investment. And these cages didn't cost me $16,000 to build this one enclosure. That's right. ridiculous. So I'm doing less money. I'm investing less money. The only difference is that I didn't waste money on bringing in quantity over quality. The numbers are there to support what I'm doing. They're not there to support what these other guys are doing. Yeah, because your output has... So what do you think about... Because obviously you have, you're have getting these massive black dragon clutches, like 20 eggs, like you're saying. Is there one factor that you think is associated with that? Because that, like, that, that's 
how the math works. If you have the quality versus quantity, your animals are producing more profit because you're getting more eggs, which is kind of, you know, the way it fits together. So is there anything specific that you think has led to that? Yeah, it's husbandry. It's 100% just, just overall, husbandry. Mm-hmm. Just overall husbandry. What I'm doing in the in the water monitor enclosures are like stupid simple to breed. Like anybody can breed them. And the people that are already breeding them, it would take them hardly anything to get them to cycle as often as mine are and to get them to produce more eggs. I literally let the animals feed to failure twice a week, the females, and then they're good. They're very well taken care of. I'm not skimping out on meals. The animals have plenty of nourishment in their body. I'm not trying to feed 10 black dragons chicken feet because I'm trying to save money because I just don't Mm -hmm. have the money to do it. What are you feeding? I literally feed almost exclusively week old chicks. Okay. That's all I feed. Like if I have a female croc or lace that's coming out of a cycle, like they just laid eggs, um, and, and I'm having issues. Uh, I don't necessarily need to have issues, but usually I'll give them uh, thawed chicken breasts, raw, skinless, boneless chicken breasts. And that'll like, it's like crack to them. They'll come right out and then they'll eat that. <laughs> I'll give them like one piece of that just to kind of get their metabolism going. And then uh, a couple days after I'll start feeding them the chicks again and a couple more pieces of the, the chicken, but it gets them uh, kind of back going again. Um, but I don't feed anything special. I think uh, that you have to figure in, in captivity, especially with an arboreal species like crocs and lace, they are not getting a huge variety of food. They're getting birds, avian species. They're getting yeah. birds, bird eggs, birds, and more bird eggs and birds like that's it. Yeah. So their bodies have evolved to be adapted to the nourishment of an entire bird or bird egg like that's it so also if you're feeding like say hard-boiled eggs or a week-old chick those animals are literally full of all of the ingredients you need for that animal to make eggs yeah so you know you already have everything in there for them so you can almost count like the, the number of week old chicks that my water monitor will eat in a week is the same number of eggs she will lay within a small tolerance when she cycles. So same thing with the crops. I had the crop feeding down to six chicks a week. She laid six eggs. The water monitors, my, my uh, black dragon um, on it, she eats a ton of chicks. I mean, she'll eat, she'll eat 10 chicks twice a week. She lays 20 eggs or so around there, 20 eggs, 18 eggs, 22 eggs, 24 eggs, you know, so she's constantly eating that many chicks. It's a really simple one-to-one ratio. If you're not putting it in on the front, you're not going to get it out of the back. This stuff doesn't come out of thin air. That's just yeah. not the way physics works. So yeah, it's just one of those things where you're, if if these people put any amount of thought whatsoever into what they were doing, they would catch on to these little tiny uh, idiosyncrasies and stuff like that. These little trends that are extremely apparent. If you have, a, I have a really detailed mindset, you know, um, which serves me really well in my job. So all that little stuff, like it comes to me like second nature. I don't have to work for it a lot, you know. So. Mm-hmm. 
I understand like I'm kind of on a different wavelength than a lot of these guys and I don't want it to make it. I always, I'm consciously trying not to make it sound like these people are doing this stuff on purpose because a lot of this stuff doesn't come naturally to a lot of people. Um, but it is one of those things where if you really, if you, if they took the amount of time that they did on their animals as they do, you know, bashing people on the internet, creating Facebook pages and whatever, like they would be way more successful in what they're doing. There is uh, something to be said for the fact that I do not belong to any Facebook groups. I don't have any <laughs> BS job. on my Facebook page. I don't go out of my way to get involved in the reptile trade at all. I literally just breed my animals when they're, I advertise them, people buy them. I mean, dude, my entire next clutch of that whole croc monitor clutch is already sold. The lace clutch that's coming up is reserved. Like uh, my black dragon clutches that come up, I have people who always want to buy them wholesale or otherwise. It's like, I don't have to do any work for that. I think that bugs a lot of people as well. Mm -hmm. Well, I do hope that sort of philosophy does start to catch on because if we do even look at the basic economics, which seems to be the driving factor for such poor husbandry, you can kind of flip that on your on its head, like you're saying, and th there's actually more economic profit or potential if we focus on husbandry at, because these are what the animals are tuned to, to do. Plus, the ethics falls in line then, and we're ethically caring for these animals as best as we can at this time. Obviously, as science goes and as we learn more, we'll continue to improve, but that's what we want. We don't want sort of bottom-of-the-barrel kind of philosophy, and I hope that, you know, stories like you where people realize, like, wow, he's actually just focusing on husbandry, and then the animals are rewarding him for that, you know, unintentionally, mm -hmm. that, that's a great story. Yeah, it's like a, it's just a byproduct of me doing what I'm supposed to be doing anyway as a reptile mm -hmm. keeper. Them breeding and laying eggs and all that stuff, like that's all cool and all, but I do this for the animals. Like if they want to lay eggs and I'm good at, you know, cycling them and putting the male and female together at the right time so they don't fight, you know, stuff like that, I'm not putting my animals at risk for the sake of a bottom line. I just never do it. So I'm not putting two animals together if I know they won't breed just because I'm like, oh, I don't want to miss an opportunity to get some eggs because I need to make my mortgage payment. You yeah. know, like I'm not doing that. I just I don't have it in me to do that. I'm not going to put that animal at risk and then have to deal with the consequences after. And that animal knowing that I literally threw it into a situation where it had to defend itself, which you can tell all these other guys are doing. You know, I don't want to say all, but there's a lot of people are doing where you look at like. I've set, I, I've set, a, if there's one thing I've contributed to the reptile trade in the last few years is that I set a standard for documentation. A lot mm -hmm. of these guys have not been documenting lockups. They haven't been documenting egg hatches. They haven't had video systems in their enclosures. They haven't been putting out any data uh, or posting anything like that. And now that there is an actual standard set for keeping logs or posting stuff you can see a lot of these females that are being bred are all scarred up like mm -hmm. really bad and those are that is on the breeder that is on them putting two animals together that aren't either aren't compatible or aren't compatible at the time so their timing was off generally if you have a female who wants to breed and another counterpart male who is always ready to breed like the male picks up on it. The female knows there's a male there and they're willing to breed. These animals are literally biologically designed to reproduce. So it's not yeah. like you're, 
you're not like doing anything cool. Like the animals are doing everything. They, they are wired evolutionarily to want to breed. If they are not breeding and producing eggs, you suck as somebody who's taking care of them. You know, like if you give them their needs, they, the first thing they want to do is make more babies. Yeah. That's their biological need. They want to eat, drink, and make babies. They're like me. I just want to eat, <laughs> drink, make babies. You know, That's so right. it's like. <laughs> as long as your needs are met, it's good. No, That's and, right. and it's, it's, it's so true. And there was one other thing that I wanted to talk about before I let you go is the hybrids. If we can get an update on them, because I know that was a project that I think raised some eyebrows in some sense. I think you probably got some criticism for it as well. And I, But I, I we haven't seen much about them. So I was wondering if you could remind us about that project and then tell us a little bit about Because I know there was also a study that was written on them as well. Yeah, so what's what's typical of the reptile trade is all the people who are bashing me never read the study. I still get like messages, hey, whatever happened with that hybrid project? Like, dude, there's a 12-page study written by a biologist on on our on homepage. It's a PDF. Yeah. Like we had all the DNA testing done, all that stuff done. Um, it was a really cool project. Um, we ended up with three animals, none of them tested as hybrids. So they all tested as parthenogenic animals, which was really cool, actually. So a, a byproduct of all the DNA testing, um, which, you know, I didn't care if they were hybrids. I just wanted to do a cool project and have another reason to use our DNA testing because nobody uses it. Mm-hmm. It's all there. Anybody can send samples in. They've gotten zero samples from all these people who bitch and complain about not having an area for them to do DNA testing. I paid over 10 grand for all of the development and everything on all the primers and alleles to do all that testing. Nobody uses it. Literally no one. So, so, so that I know we talked about that last time because you were kind of in the, it was, you had just finished doing it or it was like a year before or something, but can you remind people what that is? You've developed basically PCR testing so you can genetically test. Was it just water monitors or also lace as well? You can test the water monitors, the lace, the croc monitors, any of the large uh, varanids that looks like all of our testing will work for. Mm, so okay. you're basically testing for relatedness. So there's, um, I think we have about 12 or 16 alleles, which is about 24 or 36 um, primers. So you'll get that many data sets to be able to see any differences between monitors. So we have a president set um, of how much relatedness you generally have between the species and unrelated species as is. And then you can send in, uh, say, you know, if I wanted to send in my two lace monitors, um, which they have been tested, but if I wanted to resend them in and check them to see how related they are, that would give me more insight into how basically how nice the animals would look uh, when I bred them. Because the more unrelated your animals are, or the closer you can get to that benchmark standard of unrelatedness between species, the larger, robust, and longer living your animal's offspring are going to be. That's how genetic diversity works. The Mm -hmm. more diverse your genetics are, the more longevity the animals are going to have. And that's how the world has populated and evolved all these species over time. If the shitty little animals live forever, we would have shitty little animals everywhere, right? (laughs) But it's always the big animals that live longer. That's why you see like in a locality of any of the animal species, you see in a locality, generally the animals are smaller Mm -hmm. because 
a locality is literally just a visual representation of inbreeding. So you have animals in an area that are all breeding with each other and those traits of that locality are being put back into the pool and they're constantly being reinforced, 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 reinforced. And then you end up with, you know, people like to say, oh, is it a Khomeini locality or whatever, the black dragons? I'm like, they're all the same. All yeah. the scientific studies have shown that Khomeini is synonymous with Salvatore. So yeah, I'm sure there is an area where there's a lot of black water monitors in it. That is not the place you want to get a black water monitor from. Those animals don't grow as big. They're not going to live as long. That is literally where genetic diversity has ceased to exist. Exactly. That is it's why like those animals are there. Genetic bottlenecking to the max there. They've removed yeah, that's all. exactly what it is. Yeah. You don't want an animal from a locality. That's why our wild caught male that I have was caught um, in Thailand somewhere. It was in a food market. Really? <laughs> yeah. So... <laughs> Which sounds weird for us, but it's normal for everybody else. Yeah. But, um, as far as the DNA testing goes, so we're just testing for genetic relatedness. So mm. um, you would basically, so so you test Yoshi, who was the mother of the, the hybrids or the parthenogenic animals. And she would have a specific lineup of how those 32 primers came out, um, whether they were positive, negative, or any, that gives it, the, the machine gives it a numerical value for the level of, I guess, pop you would get for those primers. So when you test a normal offspring, you have a certain, you would, theoretically, you get 50% from the mom and 50% from the dad, which is BS because you have a certain amount of relatedness to start with regardless. So um, you would see a couple of those primers that are different because mm. you're, what you're seeing there is the introduction of the male's DNA into the female because it was a natural breeding. Well, on a parthenogenic animal, you don't get any of that. So you're going to see the exact same um, or very, very small changes in the uh, primers of those animals. So if you have a normal breeding, you would see a, a lot more changes in there. If you have a parthenogenic breeding, your, your primers are going to come out with the exact same or very close to the exact same numerical value all the way through all 32 primers, right. which every primer is just a data point that we're using to test for a, a level of genetic variation. So um, on all of the hybrids, we did see that it looked like the DNA, with the exception of a couple of points, um, was very very similar to a parthenogenic animal so mm. what you guys had already done as well right you had already yes. done a testing of partho yeah yeah so we already had from yoshi we had her dna we had um dna of one of her offspring that was bred from another male we had a parthenogenic offspring from her also and we had the hybridized project offspring also. So we had every single variant you could want um, to be able to have a control group to be able to kind of compare the data to. So we knew we were going to be able to figure out whether they were actual hybrids or not. And then we also DNA tested uh, the male croc monitor, as well as a bunch of other croc monitors, a bunch of lace monitors, a bunch of other water monitors, black dragons as well. So um, 
it looked, but what was cool was one of the byproducts of that was that we were able to establish that even with parthenogenic animals, you still get a bunch of genetic variation as far mm-hmm. as the way the animals look um, and their size potential and all kinds of stuff. Cause we had one of the animals came out um, and uh, it, uh, it was much larger, much, you know, it acted completely different. It didn't look the same. We also had the snout variation and there is some leeway in there. I mean, I can't 100% say that the animals were parthenogenic because of the little variations we had in the DNA, but based on the data that we do have, it would suggest that they are parthenogenic. Mm. Um, I just would think that if you had a breeding, a true breeding of two species you would obviously have much higher fertility rate for one um even though three parthenogenic animals is really unheard of parthenogenic clutches you generally get one to two um and then also you should have much more genetic diversity in her dna but even between the two species we did have a lot of overlapping primers um so even just testing a croc monitor and a water monitor, you still have a lot of relatedness between the two species. So it really comes up to chance, but I I really think they were just parthenogenic animals. It was a fun project to do. Um, There is a better way to do that project um, that would give you results right when the animals hatched. And that would be a a croc monitor male to a female black dragon. and that is simply because we know that a parthenogenic black dragon comes out all black. So right. the only way that you would be able to hatch out a parthenogenic animal from a black dragon female is if it was all black. So if one of them hatched and it wasn't all black, it would you know. be, yeah, you would be a dead ringer that there was outside influence right there. So that would be like the only other project to do, um, which I don't think I'm really willing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because the the croc monitors, especially my male, is a little unpredictable. Um, and he's already a proven breeder to our other female croc monitor, which I would like to not mess with. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, it's one of those things I'd like to do, but there's plenty of other stuff to do. I mean, I'm not really, there's no like stock to be had if you can prove that they can hybridize. The only thing is scientifically, if you were able to prove that they could hybridize, it would just, in in theory, in a very vague way, it would prove that they had a common ancestor a lot sooner than we thought. Right. So that's the only like attribution I could give to the biological community is like, hey, these guys had an ancestor much sooner than you guys thought. You should change the books on that one. Yeah. You yeah. know, so so it's one of those things, but yeah, it's pretty cool. Do you have any other projects in mind that you're going to try to tackle? Or right now you're just focused on the, the three pairs that you have? Um, uh, not really. I mean, I, 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 to be honest, I'm kind of done with the large varanids. You know, <laughs> like I set out to breed the three hardest monitor species to breed, right? The water monitors were super easy. The lace monitors I bred multiple times and have multiple successes with. Those are a lock, you know, I can breed those. Um, The croc monitors I bred and got fertile eggs from in a year of starting this facility. 
it's like, there's not really anything else I want to do. Like the more and more the days go on, the less and less motivated I am to even keep these animals here, you know, and I'm not going to keep them around just for the sake of what the internet clout, like, I don't care, (laughs) you know, like if tomorrow I decided that the animals would be better kept somewhere else. Like I would just delete the Instagram page and Facebook page and like sell all the animals. Um, You know, I'd like to use this building for building a bunch of my other projects I have going on. I literally just beat the world record for half mile speed trap for the BMW chassis. So I hit 186.4 in the half mile in that car. We should have been in the 200s, but we had a really bad wind that day. And it was literally blowing me like 10 feet in either direction at over 180. So, so that was a quarter mile? Half mile. Oh, half so mile, it's half really mile. hard to get up to that speed in the half mile. So you have to you have to do it on an airstrip. So there's an airstrip in Gila Bend, Arizona, uh, where we went and did the, uh, the world record. So and then I have another car that I'm building now that uh, we're going to be able to smoke that world record with. Um, so that's like, I, I, I think it's a misconception that like, oh yeah, this takes up a lot of my time. This is like my main <laughs> hobby. No, it's not. Yeah, I do all kinds of other stuff. I race cars. I do all kinds of stuff. Um, so, so next time I, you you're know, on the podcast, you might just be in the garage instead of, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. There might be like a, you know, an 1800 horsepower two JZ powered E36 behind me or something. So yeah, that's how, that's how it happens. So I'm kind of, I've always been that way. I have like a project and a goal in mind and I'm really motivated until I hit that goal. Then after I've hit the goal, it's, you know, yeah. I mean, the, honestly, the only reason I've kept this facility even going after I had, or after I bred the Crocs and got eggs was just because of my attachment and my investment in the animals specifically, you know, like Onyx is like the coolest black dragon in the world. Yoshi is 17 or 18 years old now and she's old as hell. And I just don't trust anybody else to take care of her. Yeah. You know, the croc monitors are really cool, but like chances are, even if you took this pair and you put them in, in a, in a different facility, somebody else wouldn't be successful with them. I mean, that's been proven time and time again. Uh, the lace monitors, I think people could be successful with those if I were to sell those off. Um, but stuff like that, you know, and the, um, I'm just kind of, uh, I, I wish I had another project in mind. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, maybe one will pop up. It's, uh, I, I totally know what you mean. Like when you have this massive goal that you're striving for, the excitement is like on the journey towards it. And then once you yeah. hit it, you're like, yeah, that was not as exciting as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> yeah. That's how it was with my half mile car. I literally built that car to break the world record, which we smoked by over 10 mile an hour. And then, uh, I literally had it up for sale the week after the race. <laughs> Cause I was like, that's it. I'm done. Like I built yeah. the whole thing. I can't work on it anymore. It's already finished. Like I could take it to a couple other races and maybe improve on my times, but and on my trap speeds, but it's, that's it. I've done what I set out to do. Let somebody else play with it. Let me start the new project. I already bought the next project. It's coming here from Florida. It'll be here in two weeks. So I already bought another car on eBay and it'll be here in a couple of weeks being shipped over. So it's like, you know, like I've always been that way. That's just how it is. I have a goal in mind and I'll do, I'll move heaven and earth to make that goal a reality. And nobody is going to stand in my way. I don't give a shit what you say or, you know, you go, oh, that's not going to work or blah, 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 which people tell me all the time. I'm like, where are you basing that off of? Yeah. Have you ever read like any studies at all? What, just because (laughs) you, 
you got a reply from Kevin McCurley on a Facebook page. <laughs> like, like, dude, it's freaking stupid. Like the, the results that I have speak for themselves. I don't have to say or do anything. I have bred successfully these three species better and more often than anybody else has ever. And it's in a huge facility that nobody else has ever built. You know, like it's, it speaks for itself. It's like obvious. So, yeah. and I don't keep secrets. That's what sucks is all of these other guys could be doing way more for their animals and they could just adopt some of the basic things that I do. I've just taken the basic stuff that I know works and I scaled it up just for the sake of me having some cool shit. You know, yeah. it has nothing like that. My croc monitors don't need a 16 foot tall enclosure with full size live trees in it. King palm trees and like a, a friggin' log going through it that's 30 feet long. Like, <laughs> dude, they don't need that. But it's cool you as know? hell. Yeah, but it's cool <laughs> as hell. You know, like even with my cars, like I didn't need to build what I built to be able to beat the world record. But I wanted to build it that way because I thought it'd be cool. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I could have gone the way cheaper route and not spent 120 grand on a, you know, a 20 year old <laughs> BMW chassis and done that. But it was cool as hell. Yeah. You exactly. know, all those other guys with newer cars that they bought, you know, they have like fully built twin turbo Lamborghinis and I'm smoking them in my 22 year old car. <laughs> <laughs> you know, See, that that's was... where the reward comes in. Yeah, exactly. And I and I enjoy the process of building everything and mm-hmm. getting everything going. So that's what also keeps me going is these little changes like the stuff we talked about in the beginning, like the problems you run into. I enjoy researching and finding a creative way to mitigate those issues. You exactly. know, whether it was like, oh, the temperatures are dropping, like, okay, well, let's add a water heater to the misting system. Who else has that? Yeah. You know, and then you got to calculate out how much water you need in the tank. So you're not blowing cold water back in after an hour. Yeah. I always say that is the, like the heart and the soul of the hobby is problem solving. And that's really what we use the animals to do. Like we enjoy the problems that they present to us and we get to tinker with things and build things. And that's where a lot, a lot of the enjoyment comes from. So clearly you've taken that to a ridiculous level, which has been fantastic for us to to follow along with. Can you let everybody know? where you can be found online? Because I know obviously it's probably still several months before the croc eggs potentially hatch. I know people will be interested in that, but where else can they find more info on you? So if you go on toothlessreptiles.com, there's uh, that whole study on the on the uh, the hybrid project on the bottom of the page is a PDF. And there's also, um, I get a lot of questions about, do you have anything available? What are your prices? If you go on our website, you click on current events, it brings up all of our current clutches. And if you look at the hatch dates and those hatch dates have passed, then those animals are probably sold and I just haven't updated it. Um, and then check our price list on the website. Also, it'll give you an idea of pricing and there's terms and conditions on that price list that goes through all of our shipping and stuff that we do. I don't charge for shipping. I don't charge for microchipping. All the animals come out of here microchipped and shipped by a FedEx priority first overnight, which is a uh, a ridiculously fast shipping option that a lot of people don't even know exists. But, um, and then also our Instagram, Toothless, at Toothless Reptiles. Um, and then we also have the Facebook page that's Toothless Reptiles as well. And feel free to message me on there or shoot me a text message. Uh, the phone number's posted or give me a call. If you really want to help me out, call me, don't text me. Because then <laughs> I can actually 
help you with your project instead of me having to figure out whether I really want to text all this to you or not. And then that is like me figuring out whether I want to answer you truthfully or fully. I'd like yeah. to give you a wholesome reply, but if you do it through text, I'm not going to give you a good one. Yeah. It's hard to answer those long questions. Yeah. I'm like, why did you send me that? And the amount of time you wrote that essay, you could have looked it up on Google. <laughs> exactly. Well, Corey, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us again. This was another fantastic eye-opening conversation. It was a pleasure to chat with you. So thank you so much. And maybe we'll do another one in the future if the Crocs and the monitors are still in the picture. I'm excited to, to do more. I enjoy your podcast. I listen to it often. So thank you. Appreciate it. All right. That is the end of that episode. Corey, thank you so much for jumping on another episode and sharing all of the things that you're up to over there. I know I can speak for all the listeners and say it is totally fascinating what you've done. And we really all probably can't wait for those croc eggs to hatch. We'll be watching that. And to the listeners, thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you are looking for more information on Corey, Toothless Reptiles, or the podcast in general, make sure you head to animalsathomenetwork.com and click on the Animals at Home banner. And there you will find all the episodes listed under this show. Thank you very much to CustomReptileHabitats.com for sponsoring the episode of the podcast. As always, if you're looking for any high-level reptile equipment, whether that's backgrounds or misters or substrates, head to CustomReptileHabitats.com. There are affiliate links in my description box, in the YouTube description, or in the show notes. If you do use those links and you end up purchasing something, a small commission does come back to me at no extra cost to you. So you will be helping yourself with new pieces of equipment, but you'll also be supporting the podcast. And I would really appreciate that. I will catch you guys in the next episode.